I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Contact. This morning's detection of an unidentified radio source from deep space can neither be confirmed nor denied. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position? I checked interferometry somewhere in Lyra, I think. Uh, Vega? Can't be. It's only 26 light years away. I want all these people out of here. Go having sent this announcement all over the world may well constitute a breach of national security. Oh, this isn't a person-to-person call. This may be an announcement to get our attention. The president's called an emergency meeting. You know those interlaced frames that we thought were noise? This says structure. I'm going to recommend to the president that we militarize this project immediately. There's no reason to believe that their, their intentions are hostile. There's no proof of that. Why don't they just speak English? Mathematics is the only truly universal language, Senator. Buried within the message itself is the key to decoding it. Those look like engineering schematics, almost like blueprints. It is our belief that the message contains instructions for building some kind of machine. A machine? It might turn out to be some kind of a transport. Transport? The fact is, you don't know what it does. It could be anything. Nobody's saying this is dangerous. They're going to build it. Who gets to go, though? It's complicated, Ellie. Who gets to go? By doing this, you're willing to risk your life. You're willing to give your life and die for this. Why? This is a commissioned show, executive produced by Matthew A. Siebert. That is going to be what I call the sponsored shows from now on. And this is a movie that means the world to us, more than the world, in fact. And it is so huge and so tapped into deeper, greater themes and the biggest of questions that we attempted to record a show on it back in 2014. And the whole thing just broke down in the opening discussion. What Matthew A. Siebert has done by retaining us in this way is given us a unavoidable task, a quest to account for what this film and its concepts entail. He's taken away our excuses. It's one of the lesser known Bob Zemeckis films that made less of a cultural footprint than say The Back to the Futures, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, or indeed Forrest Gump. But it absolutely holds up today, and we want to heap praise on one of my favourite directors before next week, when his 2022 Disney movie gets a critical focus in our Dueling Pinocchios show. Carl Sagan was an American astronomer, planetary scientist, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author, and science communicator. His best-known scientific contribution is his research on the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Sagan conceived the idea for Contact in 1979, so 18 years before the film. That year, Linda Obst, one of his closest friends, was hired by producer Peter Guber, Goober as a studio executive for his production company Casablanca Filmworks. I mean, if you want to talk about a film like giving yourself prestige, did you give yourself this name? <laughs> oh yeah, this uh, my um, my film company Citizen Kane Filmworks. <laughs> my my film company Godfather Two Filmworks. <laughs> So uh, Linda Obst pitched Goober the idea for Contact and he commissioned a development deal. Sagan and Anne Druyan, who were later married, finished their film treatment in November 1980. Druyan explained, 
Carl's and my dream was to write something that would be a fictional representation of what contact would actually be like and, and that would convey something of the true grandeur of the universe. They added the science and religion analogies as a metaphor of philosophical and intellectual interest in searching for the truth of both humanity and alien contact. Although project producer Peter Goober was impressed with Sagan and Druyan's treatment, he hired various screenwriters to rewrite the script. New characters were added. Goober suggested that Arroway have an estranged teenage son whom he believed would add depth to the storyline. Goober said, Here was a woman consumed with the idea that there was something out there worth listening to, but the one thing she could never make contact with was her own child. To me, that's what the film had to be about, Mom. <sighs> it's... It, it's fine, but it does. Not do fine, though, is it? It does basically say, "Stop it, Arroway! You've got to go home and be a family woman." Woman wants to do something that does not involve being a mother. See to your baby. Smack her around the head and send her back home to see to your the baby. teenage baby. My God! Currently doing pull-ups. Anyway. Ah. Sagan and Druyan disagreed with Goober's idea and it was not incorporated into the storyline. In 1982, Goober told, took contact to Warner Brothers Pictures and with the film's development stalled, Sagan started to turn his original idea into a novel which was published by Simon & Schuster in September 85, so six years after it began, but still a full 12 years before the film. That, that does smack a little bit of, I'll get my own contact with Blackjack and Hookers, though. Yeah. I mean, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I was talking about Goober. Goober's like, well, we, I've, I've got to have this contact, so I'll, I'm taking it. Oh, right. No, I was thinking that, He's like, got to oh, have fine, it. you're not going to make the film that I want you to make. I'm going to go and write it as a novel, which you can't interfere with. I mean, that's literally what I did. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> The film adaptation remained in development and Goobs eventually vacated his position few, at Warner Brothers in 1989. Goober became the new president of Sony Pictures Entertainment. He not like Batman or something. I don't know. <laughs> he got into a fight with John Peters, obviously. <laughs> a fist fight. John Peters was like... Did everybody? What's your favourite kind of peanut butter? And he was like, what do you mean by that? And then they began to punch one another. Why is John Peters not going after Zaslev with polar bears and spiders? That's what I want to know. Lots of cocaine mm. is the answer. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Sony tried to purchase the film rights of Contact from Warner, so he gotta have this Contact. He really believed in it. But the studio refused. Warner Brothers were the ones who eventually brought it to uh, the cinema. Coincidentally, in 1989, Obst was hired as a new executive at Warner and began to fast-track the film by hiring more writers. Fast-tracked it and in just eight years it got made. <laughs> This is how difficult it is to get anything done. Like, what we're describing here seems like the ideal movie for the 90s. It's, I've, de I've described it as if, uh, if Sunshine is a really smart Michael Bay film, like it's, it's Danny Boyle's Armageddon, then this is a really smart Roland Emmerich film. Like, you know, that he spends all of the, his time with the experts in the field, and it's like the, this expert goes to the president and they're like, yeah, fine, Mr. Scientist, but we don't think aliens with big elbows are going to turn up and explode out of the ground. Oh my God, that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> I wish. It's usually just natural disasters. Anyway. Roland Joffe was eventually hired to direct, using a screenplay by James V. Hart. 
Roland Joffe of The Killing Fields and The Mission. But his crowning achievement would be the four episodes of Coronation Street he directed. Joffe almost commenced pre-production before he dropped out, and Obst then hired Michael Goldenberg to rewrite the script again, who finished his second draft in late 1993. That second draft rekindled Warner Brothers' interest in contact, and Bob Zemeckis was offered the chance to direct, but he turned it down in favour of making a film based on the life of Harry Houdini. And don't we all remember that 1993 film directed by Bob Zemeckis, all about Harry Houdini. Zemeckis recalled, the first script I saw was great until the last page and a half, and then it had the sky open up and these angel aliens putting on a light show. And I said, this isn't going to work. James? I mean, that's... That is the same as the end of The Abyss. <laughs> Pretty much. It's also the end of Close Encounters. The aliens yeah. turn up and put on a light show. It's and not then... going to work, Stephen. And Richard Dreyfuss goes, um... What's the do -do -do? I'm leaving! <laughs> Fuck you, family! <laughs> See, nobody tells flipping Spielberg. Spielberg that he's got to go back and look after his teenage kid. He didn't dedicate his life to alien contact. He dedicated a week's worth of mashed potato to alien contact. It's not the same. No, it's not. In December 1993, Warner Brothers hired George Miller to direct. And this, this would be after the success or around circa the success of Babe. The pig picture. <laughs> I'm now imagining the wormhole sequence with the Mad Max Fury Road soundtrack Jesus. behind it. He doesn't always. <laughs> At that point, Junkie XL was doing dance music. Anyway, uh, Contact commenced pre-production. Miller cast Jodie Foster in the lead role. Thank you, George Miller. Approached Ray Fiennes to play Palmer Jars. It's a that shame. Worked better. I, I, I think it kind of would, but yeah. at the same time, Fiennes looks like somebody quite, like, I yeah, think English patient finds. Yeah. He does not seem like someone that you're like, this guy believes in God in a warm, kind of, you know, approachable fashion. Yeah. Like, he feels more like a Victorian missionary. Yeah. Who you'd hate instantly. Yeah. Would that it were. He also considered casting Linda Hunt as the President of the United States. So, you know, even in the 90s, including that uh, Joan Allen film, um, they were like, woman president? Could totally. that happen? Yeah. yeah. A, Why not? Many, many states around the world had had female leaders by that point. Yeah. The Joan Allen film was The Contender from the year 2000, produced by Spielberg. She plays Ohio Senator Lane Hansen, who has a shot at being vice president. It was released in the run-up to the 2000 election, had a budget of 20 million, and it made 22 million, which shows you how interested America was back then in the idea of a female potential president. They had to rewrite the film so she didn't get assassinated. In addition to having aliens put on a laser lighting display around her, <laughs> it's like they're Cirque du Soleil. Mm -hmm. Another version of the Goldenberg script had uh, an alien wormhole swallow up the planet, transporting Earth to the center of the galaxy. You know what? That, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty good. It's like, okay, we're going to save you the commute. <laughs> it's like there's two salient points in the film and they've had producers who went, let's do the opposite of that. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's, it's that they landed on, this is what the film should be after considering all these endings. Hmm. Miller also asked Goldenberg to rewrite Contact in an attempt to portray the Pope as a key supporting character. You're joking. The Pope. The Pope. The Pope. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm not joking. <laughs> the Pope. Uh, Why is that so ridiculous? Uh, 
<laughs> Could have got a young Jared Leto in going, oh yes, I am at the pub. Hark. <laughs> Did not expect to break Sharon in this way when talking about contact. <sighs> I believe the words we're searching for were, anyway... Warner Brothers was hoping to have the film ready for release by Christmas 1996, but under Miller's direction, pre-production lasted longer than expected. Not for the first time with Miller, that Justice League film was cancelled on, like, day minus one of filming. The studio fired the director, blaming pushback start dates, budget concerns, and Miller's insistence that the script needed five more weeks of rewriting. It's a very specific length of time. Yeah. I need five more weeks of... I don't know how George Miller talks. Rewriting. Yeah. You know. Robert Zemeckis, who previously turned down the director's position, decided to accept the offer because the Houdini thing didn't happen. I'm assuming he got away from him. Uh, Warner Brothers... (laughs) Damn, we're not going to be able to keep bolted down for this. Stop punning, then. I'm not. Never. <laughs> Warner Brothers granted Zemeckis total artistic control. Just get the fucking thing made and the right of final cut privilege. The irony being, one assumes it took about five weeks to get this shit underway. You know, you know, five more weeks for pre-production. Let's shit can the whole thing and then give it to a different director who'll take another seven months to get together. The director cast Matthew McConaughey as Palmer Joss. McConaughey dropped out of the lead role in The Jackal to take the role in Contact. So because of this, we got Bruce Willis as The Jackal. Does anyone remember The Jackal? Not even slightly. It's a nothing movie. Well, it would have been a nothing movie with uh, Matthew McConaughey. Despite being diagnosed with myelodysplasia in 1994, Carl Sagan continued to be involved in the production of the film for the cast and main crew members. He conducted an academic conference that depicted a detailed history of astronomy. Principal photography began in September the 24th, 1996 and ended on February 28th, 1997. The first shooting took place at the Very Large Array near Socorro, New Mexico. I cannot get over that name. Like, uh, the, the only reason you could uh, make a bigger array would be to just give it the name the even larger array. <laughs> yeah. They wanted to call it the really fucking huge array, but people said, nah. Oh, I'm just looking after the small array, mate. Eh? <laughs> Shooting at the VLA was, of course, spectacular, but also one of the most uh, difficult aspects of the filming, producer Steve Starkey said. It's a working facility, so in order for us to accomplish shots for the movie, we had to negotiate with the National Science Foundation for dish control in order to move the dishes in the direction we needed to affect the most dramatic shot for the story. In other words... Guys, you want us to make you look good? Turn the dishes this way. We've been trying to study Phalon for years. We just got the right elevation. I don't care. I'm shooting from this angle. I would imagine it's like, you know that bit in the film where she says that they each get allocated a certain amount of time to be in charge of the dishes and choose where they they Mm -hmm. point? They probably had to go into rotation for that, effectively. So it was like, right, we've got to combine the time we're allowed with the right lighting. (laughs) You're not having golden hour, okay? This was one of the uh, first few uh, films that actually used digital regrading on the skies because they couldn't get the weather to match the tone. Mm, After arduous first weeks of... Remember when I said, oh, that's a lovely sky? That was probably then. After arduous first weeks of shooting, 
in New Mexico and Arizona, production for Contact returned to Los Angeles for five months worth of location and soundstage shooting, and for that the art department created more than 25 sets. In an attempt to create a sense of realism for the storyline, principal CNN News Outlook commentators were scripted into Contact. More than 25 news reporters from CNN had roles in the film, and the CNN programs Larry King Live and Crossfire also will manage to, uh, to recognize Larry King uh, while we were watching it yesterday. Uh, they were also, in, uh, were also included, and Droiken makes a cameo appearance as herself, debating with Rob Lowe's character, put a penny in the jar, Richard Rank on Crossfire. In January 97, a second unit was sent to Puerto Rico for one week at the Arecibo Observatory. That's the place that I said, do you recognize that to Will? And Will was like, um, was it in Golden Finger? And I was like, Goldeneye. They're no, just... you're distorting what happened. Their first guess was King Kong. That was it. <laughs> that was it. And I went, you're looking at the jungle, not the massive dish that's right there. Other second unit work took place in Fiji, St. John, the US Virgin Islands, and Newfoundland, Canada. Also essential to the production were a host of technical consultants from the SETI Institute, the California Institute of Technology, the VLA and a former White House staff member to consult on Washington DC and government protocol issues. Sagan visited the set a number of times where he also helped with last minute rewrites. Filming was briefly delayed with the news of Carl Sagan's death on December 20th, 1996 and thus contact is dedicated to Sagan for Carl appears on the screen at the fade out at the end. That's, that's really sad. That's the, your, your life's work is nearing completion and you just yanked out of it. And it's like, no, you don't get to see this finish. Although knowing that your life's work is now in the hands of other people who are going to mm. complete it, regardless of the fact that you can't. Yeah. Okay. It's a melancholy way to uh, finish our uh, opening. So we begin with one of the most ambitious sequences ever put to film, the, at the time, longest CG shot in a uh, movie that was replaced Remember when I said, uh, like, a clever Roland Emmerich film? The Day After Tomorrow was a longer CG sequence. One assumes when all of New York and various other places got trashed by tidal waves that then froze. So, we begin at planet Earth, and one of the first voices I heard was fucking Mel B from the Spice Girls screaming, If You Wanna Be My Lover, as we get the blast of different radio waves and songs going around the planet in 1996. I mean, this is almost impossible to describe because the words, there are no words, they should have sent a poet. It's, it's pulling back from the Earth, and as we do, almost immediately the radio signals get older and older and we, we cut to the 70s fairly quickly and then we pass backwards through beyond Mars and pulling away from the Earth and, and things get earlier and you got some Nixon which then gives way to President Kennedy being shot and uh, then the beginning of the Vietnam War and uh, the beginning of uh, World War II and it just keeps going and going but getting fainter and by the time we're just past Jupiter and around about Saturn Human achievement in terms of being able to broadcast a signal has dwindled back to nothing. And then we just keep going. I think what I love about the sequence was that if you, he could just have gone to the Milky Way galaxy and just you keep pulling out and pulling out and eventually the nine planets circling this, this speck, but it keeps going out and out and out. It goes beyond our solar system, beyond the Milky Way, beyond the galaxy, and then we see another galaxy also in orbit, and then we see more galaxies, and we go through all of these clouds of different 
particles that I couldn't possibly tell you what they are because I'm not an astronomer. And it just, it's quiet and it just keeps going and going and it's awe-inspiring. And I saw this in the cinema and just jaw-dropping way to start a film and everyone was dead silent because in those days you couldn't get on your phone and they weren't encouraging you to eat nachos. And it just, it, it carries on going and then we get galaxy after galaxy sort of folding in until we are in the outskirts of what appears to be the saddle-shaped universe and it's profound to see not only yourself but everything around you as impossible to even see anymore and has been for many 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 light years it's one of the greatest sequences in cinema. Yeah, I would agree. I absolutely love this so much. It's such a huge <clears throat> way to start what will become such a huge concept. And there's little touches in this as well that I really found engaging. The the fact that as it as the sound pulls back and I, I one thing I'd really like to know actually is how would this sound now because so much of what we project around the world these days is digital mm. which I, I and I may be completely wrong on this and if anybody knows the, the science of this then please correct me but I think digital signals are much more local they just bounce around the satellites around the planet and unless something deliberately directs them out into space they don't necessarily just keep going and going and going the way that radio waves do. Mm. The fact that as you draw back, did you notice that the sound, it starts to fade and then as you go past a planet, it'll suddenly have a, a raise in volume? Mm. And I'm assuming that's because the signal has bounced off the planet and it's given it that little bit of extra oomph. Mm. There's that, and then there's a point where it goes past a particular nebula, which at the, at the time, all we were aware of were these two sort of column-like um, elements of this nebula. We've had some recent images taken of it from uh, much more powerful telescopes and there are more columns in that setup and it looks like effectively the hand of the Buddha holding the galaxy. Wow. It's just It just looks like these fingers kind of cupping all of the, the stars and planets and everything that, that hover around it. It's, it's astounding. It's so beautiful. I'm not even sure we can, we can top this. That's one of the reasons we broke down before. We're like, how do, we, how do we go past this? It's too profound. It's too huge. It's the reason Lovecraftian horror exists is because the immensity of this blows people's minds and what Lovecraft was afraid of everything he was afraid of uh, of just people down the street um, brown people he called them and uh, vans fishmen cultists open spaces enclosed spaces it's very difficult to get the space exactly right for Lovecraft and he's always on about men following him I don't know what he thinks they're gonna do to him vomit on him Basil says <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> I mean, this is the core precept of of the film is just that so many people can cannot fathom this size. 
it's not for us to really fathom. It's if you think too hard about it, your brain does well, this is, fly up to a higher level and you can't really relate to people on the ground anymore. This really is one of the core points of the film, that concepts like this and, and the, the enormity of what the universe is and has the potential to be has to be drip-fed to the human race, filtered through artists, filtered through um, people who can frame things in more of a a ground-level way um, and provide kind of a a conduit so that it doesn't overwhelm and either pushes into such a a brain stretch that we're not ready for, that Mm. we just reject it completely and go, oh, well, that's obviously not true. Or reject it completely and go, oh, well, even if it is true, it's not important. It's not about expanding the minds of individuals or even groups. It's about expanding the minds of generations in a generational level over time. Exactly. So it's like in this generation you might maybe get a handful of people. Da Vinci almost certainly. The the great artists of the the years of the eras um, were obviously tapped into something but gradually over time and, and there has been technology created that will allow us to distribute this stuff uh, on a, a wider scale and yeah, eventually over generation after generation after generation, more and more people are able to comprehend this stuff. But it is something that is still going and will continue to keep going. Mm-hmm. The end of the shot, after pulling out and out and out and just seeing all of these stars so infinitesimally small, though from that perspective, if you were that close, they would be everything. They would be the sun in sunshine. Yeah. The, the moment when it comes out of the solar system and you can't see the planets anymore and then our sun, which you've, you've still got a bead on because it's still slightly bigger and brighter than everything around it, mm. then hits the point where it looks just the same as all the stars around it. Yeah. That is a moment. It's, it needs to be humbling. That is a, a lot of people would just break under the pressure of all of this, but the, uh, the idea that we... You know what? I can't even. Again, this is why we broke down the the, uh, the first one. It's 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 too big. It's a visual thing. So to bring it back, we keep coming out, and we come out of a human eye, and it's Jenna Malone as young Ellie Arroway, uh, talking on a CB radio and trying to reach as far as she can with her father, played by David Morse. And this is a lovely little father-daughter dynamic that sort of grounds the film in a human relationship and it's got this is probably Alan Silvestri at his most sweet that kind of the flute playing like it's it's really it's as though playing to a child which the human race is by comparison with everyone else potentially around us and this is this this opening sequence sets up two very key things for me. The first is building on that idea of this enormity has to be filtered, is how David Morse puts this stuff across to Ellie. As a parent, he is framing it in ways that will reassure her. And when the conversation eventually turns to whether or not they could contact her mother, who has passed away, his 
reaction to this is very gentle and honest, but caring and supportive. He doesn't try to bat it away with um, platitudes of, oh, maybe if we try really hard or, or you know, something along those lines. But it's, it's framed in a way that will gently guide her in the right direction rather than chasing something that she can't have. Yeah. And this whole initial setup with the, the CB radio, there's there are moments that I will be coming back to as the, the film progresses that really, really show how Ellie, everything she is, is built around communication, is built around reaching out and in particular trying to meet other people where they are. And like I said, I'll, I'll come back to examples further on, but she's very keen on learning the communication ways of others rather than insisting that they meet her. Yeah. And this is kind of the, the first step towards that. She's using a, a device which you would not, I mean, obviously you would if you know nerds, but you would not normally associate it with a child forming connections with people. Um, but that's that's what she's what she's doing. Yeah. But the uh, the the overriding philosophy here at the beginning is small moves. The idea that rather than trying to overextend and exhausting yourself and and being feeling like not achieving enough is makes you a failure. It's small moves. It's let me just get this small thing done. Then I've succeeded in that, and then we'll keep keep going for another step. That's a huge philosophical aspect of this film. It's also about the the way that a radio works, that you ultimately have a spectrum of frequencies and you have to tick through them very, very gradually to make sure you don't miss anything. If you are desperately trying to grab the big signal, yeah. then you will probably coast right past a load of stuff. Yeah slowing down and being willing to do these things in tiny little steps is incredibly difficult for, for human beings because that's not how we're really designed. Um, or, well, okay, bad phrasing. That's not how we've really evolved. But this is what she has to kind of hold herself to, being willing to work in these tiny little steps. And she works for SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And I feel like SETI was, a, was, a, was an endeavour brought on by technology throughout the 20th century. There'd be no point trying to check for alien intelligence in the 19th century, for example. But very much like now we've got these abilities to scan and broadcast, and at the same time we can also search and look and listen out into this vastness that we couldn't before we've got this new technology we can search but there's that point of tension where you know the money men in particular are like i don't see a lot of you know future prospects in this and it means that ellie throughout the film is always on the back foot always struggling always frustrated and always begging for an extension. She's just like, I, I need a little bit more time to keep attempting this obsession that she is uh, stricken with. She, her entire life as an adult has been this, searching for things that would uh, seal the obsession, turn up in just a few minutes. 
uh, we have Bill Fickner here. You and your friends are dead! Playing Kent Clark, who himself was based on a real-life uh, astronomer named Kent Culler, who died only just recently in 2021. Wow. Kent Clark, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kent Cullors. Uh, born in July 49 in uh, Oklahoma, son of an oil field engineer. His birth was premature, and to save his life, he was placed in an incubator filled with pure oxygen. The excess oxygen damaged his retinas, leaving him entirely blind. His father, a physicist, read astronomy books two colors as a child, influencing the boy's later aspirations. He grew up in Temple City, California, where he was a highly ranked student. He is the first totally blind physicist in the United States and it is or was believed to be the first astronomer who was blind from birth, although some astronomers have become blind in their old age, most notably Galileo Galilei, he of Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Kent almost seems to be there to ensure us that Ellie is not a crazy shut-in who has no contact with the rest of the human race. Like He's there to make sure that uh, Ellie can connect with people to illustrate that uh, that in her desperation for contact, she's not the most isolated, solitary person in existence. Absolutely Although she not. absolutely definitely becomes that later on in a very uh, physical way. She does, and the but but this whole thing about what I said about her having these little examples of reaching out to to meet people in their methods of communication. This it starts really early when she meets Kent. She holds out her hand to shake his and when obviously he can't he realizes what she's done presumably because he feels the warmth of her hand mm. puts his own hand out but it's in the wrong place she moves to meet him she then does the same thing when she meets palmer she holds out her hand to shake his and it, it seems that shaking hands is not necessarily a natural gesture to her <laughs> but she's doing what people would expect in those circumstances her to do. Um, this is me peopling. Absolutely. When she's in the bar, she one assumes that being able to order a beer is something that you could do in English in Puerto Rico, but she has learned at least enough Spanish to get by. Um, so again, that's kind of this sort of, you know, using the right communication methods for where she is. And as that progresses, it becomes a key part of her fundamental argument in how they're trying to talk to the intelligence that is sending them the messages. It's She is the antithesis of the people who are like, well, why the hell can't they speak goddamn English? That's Puerto Rico. Well, no, I mean, like, they're talking about the aliens. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so she, however, does meet Palmer Joss, played by Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right. He turns up and Will was like, oh, is that the pervert from Dazed and Confused? <laughs> Like, yep, yep, that is him. And uh, he uh, is, th there's a lot of people who are representative in this film of spiritual beliefs, and sp uh, specifically a belief in, in, for, in Palmer's case for uh, his version of the Christian God. Mm -hmm. And uh, he and Ellie form kind of a uneasy duel throughout the film, whereby he is trying to get her to understand how important spirituality is for people. And she is trying to not hurt his feelings in establishing 
I require evidence and I have none. So he equates it to, can you provide evidence that you loved your father? And he talks about a personal epiphany and she sort of gently tries to move him around her, but it was a personal epiphany. It doesn't mean it's a universal thing. And ultimately the bent of the movie is very much these two pursuits, science and spirituality, do not necessarily cancel one another out. And it doesn't need to be a case of exclusion. Yeah, that this truth has to overwrite that truth. And this is demonstrated in the relationship between the two of them throughout the film because they keep coming together and drifting apart and coming together and drifting apart. And there's always this sense that the things that draw them together are the elements in which they are alike. And the things that draw them apart are the elements on which they differ. And it is a difficult path to negotiate, but I believe it ends on a positive one. Yeah. And weirdly... She has a lot more of a hard time dealing with Drumlin, mm. because his beliefs definitely don't match hers. Yeah, and it, I mean, even, even on things like, um, like in terms of her connections with Palmer, the fact that her uh, conversations with him trigger a flashback to uh, the incident when her father died and that suggests that the being around him has uh, sort of brought up this sense of loss and she you can tell from like the the expressions and the body language as she's getting up and getting dressed and, and leaving him effectively that that's what this is about this is not necessarily she's not leaving at this point because of philosophical differences as much as she is leaving because she doesn't want to open herself up to feeling that kind of loss again yeah um there's a weird <laughs> i mean there's obvious reasons for this but Jodie Foster's a really, really good actress. I have to believe she could have got past this if she wanted to. There is a weird lack of chemistry between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Physi like physical chemistry. There is an obvious affection, but in terms of any kind of, of sort of uh, romantic chemistry, there is none. Herbie, uh, him being drawn to her, I can buy because he's Matthew McConaughey, and whenever he looks at you and sort of goes, all right, all right, you're like, <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> Or, or you might just go, fuck off, you creep. I never forgot she was gay. Mm, yeah. And it seemed like, uh, if anything, uh, Ellie comes across as, as somewhat asexual in terms of that this doesn't really interest Actually, her. Actually, yeah, that's, that's more what it feels like to me. That there's that what it does is it emphasises that she has uh, a determination and a dedication and priorities that go way beyond that sort of human romantic sexual yeah. obsession and fixation that we would normally associate with romantic love. Her devotion and dedication is to something else entirely Absolutely. so she can't uh, what, some of her many weaknesses uh, you know, as a character which makes her a strong character ironically uh, are that she can't commit parts and um, compartmentalize parts of herself. She is on a holy crusade which makes her very disagreeable to a lot of men. Yeah. She does not think like the majority of the people she finds herself around. And ultimately, what draws her to Palmer over and over again is a, more of a philosophical connection. Like I said, it's, it's the, the, the elements on which they do match um, that brings her back to him. Mm. The early tragedy... Not bone-jumping stuff. Not bone-jumping stuff, then.
No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. The sentence was already coming out of my mouth when you started speaking and I couldn't yeah. stop it. <laughs> Now tonight we're going to jump the bone. Did not expect to be laughing so much during the contact show. It's ridiculous. Our minds are rebelling against all of this seriousness. Anyway, the early tragedy that uh, we were uh, just mentioning there is her father dies uh, when she's very young, not too long after the opening sequence where they're trying to call and succeed in, uh, well, they don't even know where they're, they're, they're broadcasting the uh, signal to and where they're receiving it from, but it, it turns out to be Pensacola, Florida, which is the longest that they've uh, been able to contact before in the past, so far. And her father's getting her to sit down and watch a movie so that they can, you know, enjoy some daddy-daughter time. And to me, Dramatic deaths that happen slightly off screen are almost always more powerful than actually seeing it happen in cinema. We saw a, a film the other day, it was Dragon Quest uh, Your Story, where uh, a, a young boy's father is killed horribly in front of him and Will was like, that's a bit much. If we cut away at that exact point, it actually makes more of a, uh, an impact. That whole, the, just that hearing a crash from within the house and the person you were talking to now not responding is so much more frightening and so much more real than a big dramatic movie death. For, because most of us find out that people that uh, we care about have grown terribly suddenly ill or had an accident or died when we weren't with them. That's more relatable. In fact, now that I think about it, there's, an, there's a sequence in one of my later books where exactly that happens. It's, it's not a death, it's a collapse and then the uh, revelation of somebody being very, very sick. And it's during a preparation for something else. Which brings me back to the words of the sunscreen song by Baz Luhrmann, that the real problems you're, you're apt to face in life are the kind that you don't worry about and that blindside you uh, on some idle Tuesday. When the priest tells a grieving Ellie on her front porch uh, in effectively not so many words, okay, so God took away your mother and now God has seen fit to take away your father when you're at this tender age and you really, really, really needed him, um, but he works in mysterious ways. She doesn't argue with him or shout. She just mutters to herself, I should have kept the pills in the kitchen. I should have, uh, you know, the the human side of this, the practicality side of this, it's 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 shutting the spirituality and the idea of there being anything out there that isn't quote unquote real. It's also desperately trying to keep her on the track she was on when her father was alive. Ultimately, I should have kept some medication in the downstairs bathroom mm. is now useless information to her. She is no longer in a situation where that is going to help. But it illustrates her obsession growing as, and she's like, I, we can do this and get through if we do the practical thing. Yeah. But ultimately her life's work of, I want to try to hear this voice 
is not a million miles off of somebody on some kind of spiritual quest where they want to talk to God directly and to have God or the gods or who whatever their belief system entails speak back to them in a way that they can intuit. Yeah. But it's not enough for her to intuit it. She needs to have... It, it needs to be something scientific that she can see on a, a readout or have other people validate for yeah, her. Yeah, that's the thing. She gets the uh, the experience for herself and is accused of lying at the end, but at, and at no point is she like, I know what was real, and just sort of shrugs in a kind of, I don't need you to. She does need us to trust her and to believe her and she is this is the the end point of the movie she's put in the position of somebody who has had a spiritual epiphany trying to convince everybody else that this thing exists and the reason that that comes across as at least to me as benevolent rather than well this is the the rantings of a lunatic is because she's coming at it from a position of this was something that brought me great reassurance great joy great comprehension and i want other people to be able to experience that she's not saying i now have instructions from them and they say we've got to do this this yeah. this and this it's never about her no, no it's always about them that she's trying to to speak with yeah. but also losing her father at this point from david morse's performance and from the scant lines he's given uh, it's very clear he was a man who was able to balance the practicality and the love in an extremely positive way. And having him wrenched away is a genuine wound to her life that has not healed when we meet her. Uh, and the people she clashes with the most tend to be money men who are like this crazy woman just keeps asking for more money to do her loopy friggin' aliens. And the, uh, at what point... Are we going to finally see the reward on this one? And it, the fact that this sort of comes at the end of the 20th century, there's a kind of, there's nothing out there feel, which has pervaded for the past uh, decades since contact. There's a, a sense in a lot of people that is like, ignore outer space, focus entirely on ourselves here on the planet. And I applaud that if it's coming from a perspective of we need to sort our shit out. This film does have my philosophy of can't we do both but the realities are that doing both is eventually going to cost a large amount of money and, and, and a, a stratospheric amount of money and the people who have access to that much money don't see a reason to keep investing so it does genuinely deliver that sense of this is what would actually happen if we were this close to alien contact, the money men would get cold feet. Well, look at how little NASA has been funded for the last few years. Yeah. It's it's really not something that is, that, that is a priority to certain people. Mm. If we were going to do one over the other, I would say sort our shit out first, because then we can move forwards and start well, thinking about yeah. the other one later. The if we desperately try to, to uh, uh, send people out there, like if we let the uh, billionaires who absolutely want to be front and center on this one, run the show on this. Well, the, the problem is that now, current year argument, 2023, the, the attitude towards uh, space exploration 
is very different from how it was in the 90s and yes you've got the the input of all of these people who want to do it and are willing to put their own personal fortunes which are fucking substantial into it the problem is that they want to do it for personal glory or ultimately the ability to turn that into commercial ventures so there was a recent attempt to launch a satellite into space from Britain uh, and it was going to be the first time that they were going to take a payload up there and actually put it into orbit. It didn't work, something went wrong and they couldn't get the, the satellite up to where it was supposed to be. But the way people were talking about it, it was like, this is going to be incredible. We're showing this to businesses that are going to want to invest in us so that we can effectively deliver their parcels for them. That's what it was about. And the fact that the person who was there from the government to sort of uh, give it the, the importance that it deserved was the freaking business secretary. Mm. You know, it, it's, it was just this entirely... Um, and don't get me wrong, I am more than sure that there were people involved with it, like technician level, who were totally about human endeavour and achievement. But there was just this sense of commerciality about the whole thing. And if you look at what um, uh, the, the shuttles that have been up so far, they've been taking... They're not exactly commercial clients yet, but that's the idea. It's so that rich people get to see space. It doesn't have that that childlike sense of it being about we want to go out and see what's there. It's about we want to go into the known bits and take people who just are rich enough to get an opportunity to see them or move stuff from A to B faster. So effectively going up to space is the, uh, the equivalent of eating gold. Because I can, so, yeah, so I've because, done this. Because I can afford it, yeah. Then a potential message comes through, just as uh, she's had to interview for funding. She's cut short by Tom Skerritt, who plays Drumlin, her, her male nemesis throughout this. He's the, uh, the guy who not only keeps shutting her down, but every time she's actually on the brink of something and can move forwards, he pushes in front of her and goes, yes, yes, this should definitely be me spearheading this group. In, in the early stages, he is her direct boss. She is actually working for him. Uh, later on, he just becomes this person in the same field who keeps stepping in front of her whenever she tries to do anything. And it, it one of the reasons that this relationship between them seems so fucking unfair is that she lost a very supportive father and he now seems to have been replaced with this obstructive, mean, constantly putting her down, unsupportive father figure who is going to prove the obstacle to everything she wants to do from here to the end of the film. Hmm. There's an irony in the fact that he was the captain in Alien and uh, wasn't particularly in intrepid in, in, in that regard. He was very much just doing a job. Yeah. And, and really, that's... I mean, he's not... He doesn't seem like a bad guy in the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of all the bad guys that you could compare him to. I mean, you've got James Woods right there, being worse. James Woods is perfectly <laughs> cast in this film. He comes in and starts glaring at uh, Star uh, Starling, at Arroway in a kind of, I've met your kind before, you won't get past me. Indeed. Um, but yeah, so, it, and, and there is something that happens later on that demonstrates that he is, on some middle-aged man level, actually excited by what is happening. Um, and it's not all about 
personal glory and personal achievement for him. Drumlin, this is. Drumlin. Not, not, uh, not James, James Woods. Woods. Oh, no, no, he's no. not excited by anything. No, no, he's not. The message that comes through is in the form of prime numbers, which is a way of indicating intelligence because it's not random. It, it's, it's, it's a series of, of woomph beats, but they are continuously counting up across prime numbers that can only be divided by themselves and one. I'm not a mathematician either. You'll notice one is not counted as a prime number hmm. because one can only be divided by itself, which is one. Yeah. When she picks up this message, there's a, a sequence where she's, because she's out in the field and uh, listening to the signals that the dishes are picking up. They've been funded now to go to uh, a different location. This is the by an unseen benefactor. Way. By an unseen benefactor, yeah. Um, and the when she picks up the what sounds like a, a uh, an intelligent planned signal, she, the way she races through the corridors to get back to the lab to tell everybody about it is reminiscent of the her scene running. where she races through the hallway to try and get to her dad. That's another incredible shot. The uh, original plan was to have uh, Jane, uh, David Morse fall in bullet time prior, several years prior to The Matrix, so like it would freeze him in midair in, you know, partway through the fall. But again, that is the dramatic, this is a death happening directly in front of you. And uh, the, what the, it actually ends up being is a camera running before Ellie as she's running up the stairs to get the pills and going through the house, which is a domestic setting where you wouldn't expect there to be flashy shots. And then it turns out that the whole shot has been in the front of a pill cabinet with a mirrored uh, door in the bathroom, which then slowly closes to show her running back away in slow motion. Uh, it was done with uh, three very cleverly uh, composited shots that were blended together with um, computers. And it's just on the side of we are trying to convey the panic and the desperation for control for a child in this moment rather than a big flashy look at what we can yeah, do with cameras. Absolutely. And one thing that they do in that sequence, which I think it really conveys that, even more than the, the mirror thing where it's flipping the whole thing round, is when it's it's very slightly stretches out the hallway and mm. we see Jenna Malone Almost like deep focus. And because it's all gone down to slow motion, it's like that dream the, sensation. Where you're running and running and you can't get there. And you're, you're not... Yeah, exactly. Everything's gone treacle. And this would be specifically because it's a memory. Mm. This is her memory of having to run and not being fast enough. Absolutely. To which uh, Will said, why didn't he just keep the pills in his pocket? And I was like, yep, <laughs> just in a pill tube and keep some in the kitchen drawer, like she was saying, and keep some in the uh, bathroom. If you could die in seconds, you keep pills hidden in every nook and cranny of that house. But it's entirely possible that he did, and it just didn't occur to Ellie mm. to look. There's a, the signal that finally comes through, like I said, with the, that when the government get involved and have to have primes explained to them, like I would, because I'm also not a mathematician, um, the image that uh, pops through is one of the uh, first ever broadcast uh, television images 
to as a show of uh, uh, German technology, it's Hitler announcing the opening of the Olympic Games. But obviously, there's a whole Blade Runner style enhance, enhance, rotate, enhance se- uh, situation where she's like, "Could you clean this up?" And then I don't know if computers work like this. I'm gonna guess no. Where it's very much kind of like dot dot click on clean this up, click on image, and. Uh, and then the what comes out is Hitler, and everyone goes, hooray. One of the things that amuses me about this whole sequence, so the, the, the intentionality of the signal is not only given away by the fact that it's prime numbers, it is also the fact that the frequency it's Mathematics being, being a on, universal language, absolutely. since numbers are the only thing that doesn't change. Yeah, the, uh, the frequency that it's being broadcast on is the atomic number of hydrogen times pi. Nice. So again, there's all these little hints that this is not something that nature could produce by accident. Um, But the contrast between a team of people that can pick out information like that, and it takes them this long to recognize a swastika, amused me. (laughs) Essentially what- I was like, isn't that a swastika? Even in the cinema. (laughs) Well, yeah. What this section is demonstrating is the clash between scientific truth and cultural experiential truth. There's even a conversation towards the end of this where, and I I will say, hands up at this point, entirely understandably on James Woods' part, because this is his job, his immediate leap is to an assumption of aggression. If somebody showed you pictures of Hitler, the, with if you if you were not removing and stripping out the cultural connotation of that, yes, you would assume that that meant something sinister. I don't know if they, if aliens had sent us a message in uh, 2018 and it had been pictures of Donald Trump, I'd have gone, oh no, they know about him. <laughs> But, yeah, but you see, in that context, it would have been, and this is why we're not coming. Yeah, okay? just say no. We'll see you in a hundred years. That's RSVPing a no thank you. A negative, you. yeah. Get rid of this guy and maybe we'll talk. Yeah, I um, think the reality was like, uh, uh, they were watching the election coverage and going, okay, so if it goes Clinton, we'll just say hi. And if it goes Trump, just wait. Yeah, we're gonna, we're just going to move this stuff off of Mars. Oh, it went <laughs> Trump. Okay, everyone back out. We're going home. <laughs> Okay. Um, I'll save you the commute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Ellie tries to explain, and you can see in the expression on her face that she is aware she is potentially on a highway to loss here. Like, this is not going to work. But she is trying to point out to them that to these guys, this is just a signal. It doesn't mean anything. They They don't attach the same connotations to it as we do. Thank God they didn't land in flying saucers and all troop out looking like Adolf Hitler. We have assumed a form that you will understand. Zig Heil. Yeah. <laughs> and this is why you have to do things in small moves, because it is not possible to find an image that would mean benevolence and connection to everyone, to everyone yeah. all at once. Even like if Paddington would come pretty close. Yes. Yeah, even if you don't know who Paddington is, if that Paddington stepped out of a spaceship, small bear the entire in a world, raincoat. the entire world will go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and certain Americans would be like, I'm going to hunt that bear. Speaking of certain Americans, we get kind of an amazing cameo at this point, which actually feels more significant now 
than it was back in 97. Bill Clinton turns up and he's actually talking about a Mars-related mission. Originally it was going to be uh, Linda Hunt, then it was going to be Sidney Poitier to play the president, but Sidney turned down the role in favour of the Jackal. What the what fuck was going on with the film? Jackal? Does it look beer flavoured nipples or something? Yes it does. Jodie Foster was like, should I do this or should I do the Jackal? But then Zemeckis watched a NASA announcement in August 1996 where Clinton gave his Mars Rock speech. I swear to God, it was like he was scripted for the movie when he said the line, we will continue to listen closely to what it has to say. I almost died. I stood there with my mouth hanging open. So what they do is, it's fairly straightforward. You just show that broadcast and then you cut to Arroway standing in a crowd, ostensibly in CJ Craig's, put a penny in the jar, uh, White House communications room, the press room. And then you show an actor who looks like Bill Clinton leaving the stage at the end. And it's extremely well done. Like, if you compare this to the shit that they do in uh, Forrest Gump, where their mouths suddenly start talking like the annoying orange. There is a moment later on when they do something that's a little closer to that, and it does stick out When's that? a bit. When they're all sat around the table, mm-hmm. um, when they're doing the, the conversations about who's going to go, mm-hmm. and they've effectively got a little photoshopped cutout of Bill Clinton sat next to James Woods. <laughs> it, it, does, it does seem a little bit obvious. Nice. He's sat next to a fucking a cardboard cutout of of uh, Bill Clinton grinning and pointing. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> this was the best cardboard like, cutout yes, we could get. The president says he wants me to go. Um, so that's a cardboard cutout of Bill Clinton. I retire, um, as, I retire president as president of America. America. <laughs> but once again, Arroway gets eclipsed by Drumlin. The, uh, it's like, now we're going to uh, speak to the person spearheading the project. And Ellie's like, okay, I'm up. And then Drumlin walks straight past her in a kind of, yep, that's me. And it's like, oh my fucking God. And Angela Bassett comes out here, Ram- Queen Ramonda herself. And she is magnificent. Presents us with a, a, a harangued version of the White House that are like, look, we've got so much we're dealing with today. It's just one day for us. Like, I've got 16 more meetings this morning. Uh, so can you folks organize it with each other without fighting, please? Yeah. And the whole, the, there's, there's a section as well about the, the idea of national security, yeah. which pisses Ellie the fuck off because this is not a national thing. This is it they, transcends nations to the by whole its very design. world. That's the point. But she keeps being knocked back with you shouldn't have told anybody else. This we need to keep this amongst within America until we can establish what their intention is, blah blah blah. She gets very more much more, Independence Day. Yeah, absolutely. She gets more and more frustrated with this. But eventually, and again, this is this is the thing. It takes Drumlin to, even though she's tried to explain this herself, it takes Drumlin saying it to James Woods et al. for it to actually sink in. They couldn't have d- have got the message without the assistance of telescope operators in other countries. The signal goes all around the world, and as the world turns, they t- they turn away from being able to pick up on it. They needed to be able to track it as the globe spun on its axis. And this, again, is something that reinforces this whole... Ellie is not an isolated, I can't bear people, I will not deal with people 
kind of woman. She has to deal with other people. She is friends with these guys. She talks to them remarkably uh, candidly and casually. She is, uh, you know, tapping away on the internet and don't we all recognise that in this day and age? With guys in Australia and God knows where else. And it really does sort of get across that it's you in your little White House office insisting that the entire world is trying to blow you up. You're the isolated ones. You're the ones who are cutting yourself off from the ability to communicate with those outside your immediate sphere. Speaking of Tom Skerritt, I could see I could see James Cameron directing this and I could see Sigourney Weaver starring in this. Yeah. Similar but different movies. Well, it would feel an awful lot like Aliens. Well, yes. Did IQs just drop while I was away? <laughs> Madam, I already said it was not of that planet. But it's, it, there is a similar feel when Arroway is trying to be heard and being uh, just spoken past the whole time. Yeah. And I could imagine a lot of women back in the day and any woman watching it since then would be like, yep. Absolutely. A huge part of it is that she's so small. It is very easy to disregard and ignore somebody who, if two or three of you stand together, no one else will see her because she is literally behind you. Also, Jodie Foster has a soft voice. Sigourney Weaver has a more, like, assertive, piercing voice. More difficult to ignore, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. More of that. It was a bad thing. call, Arroway. Bad call. <laughs> These people are dead, Skerritt! <laughs> But um, one other thing about um, Ellie's attempts to overcome this is you can see it in her clothes. She... Well, she dresses like Shaggy when she first That's has sex it. with Matthew right. McConaughey. She's... she's got this bright green t-shirt. When she's dressing on her, like for herself on her own, nobody around her except the people she spends day in, day out with, she dresses like a child. Mm. But as she builds up to bigger and more, unquote, important... Um, groups of people, you can see her manner of dress is, th these clothes almost seem like they're tools to her. Mm. She's using them for the room in which she has to stand and how the people in that room would expect her to dress. The first thing we see her in that is not clothes of her own choice is the uh, brown suit that she wears to go and pitch to Hammond's company. Yeah. And she fades that was Hammond's into the idea. room. She's wearing like a, um, they're, they're different shades of brown and there's different textures, but the wall is beige, the carpet okay. is brown. It was the 90s, everything, everything was, was beige. Brown. There is that, there is that. <laughs> but then as she sort of moves through different environments, she changes what she's wearing, but it never quite seems to fit her. Yeah. It never quite seems to be, to feel like this is something that feels natural to Ellie. Even and especially her astronaut armour. Yeah. The rest of the outfit, apart from that breastplate she's wearing later, looks like it it would be comfortable and mm. practical for that particular scenario. You, yeah. you take that as NASA. But there's this sci-fi bodice she's got on. Yeah. I can understand this launch costume more now having watched a short 11 minute video called The Hidden Meaning of Ellie's Journey to Vega by Mike Hill Design. That is armor, Ellie is Joan of Arc, on a holy crusade, just like I said, after receiving messages from her god. Absolutely, and that they even, like, they really emphasize this with the, um, uh, the reception that she goes to where she asks Angela Bassett to tell her where she can get a really great dress. Yeah. The dress she turns up in is beautiful, but it does not look like 
something that she would wear naturally yeah. because she's trying to achieve something specific which is to reconnect with Palmer. I think that there was a whole scene cut out where she and Angela Bassett go clothes shopping. <laughs> it plays I'm Too Sexy because it was the 90s. <laughs> anyway, uh, I actually think, I don't know whether this was intentional You used that vibe, by the way, in your story. Yes. Steamheart, yes. the, the, the one where everyone uh, is getting dresses, but specifically it's because uh, truth is like, we have to be ladies in the eyes of these people. They have to not realise what we're trying to get done at this particular party of movers and shakers. We have massive influence. We have to dress how they would expect us to, but at the same time, this rouge is your war paint. You need to keep your head in the game. There's a time and a place for fun and games and it's not here. I don't know whether this was intentional, but remember when I said she's wearing a shaggy t-shirt earlier? It's bright green in a very specific shade. That bright green turns up one more time in this film and it's when uh, Catcher Block, what's his fucking name? Palmer Joss turns up and goes, all right, all right, NASA, that's what I'm talking about. And it's like, why are you here, Palmer Joss? Who keeps letting you in? But uh, Ellie's talking to him and he's distracting her from her calling again. And in the background, Angela Bassett and uh, a bunch of other people are dealing with a bunch of files that are precisely that same shade of green. Could just be coincidence, but it's a nice way of sort of hearkening back on some subliminal level to that time when he was kind of messing with her mind and uh, that she was conflicted at that point. If it was intentional, well done, Bob. Another thing, Hitler's not the only Nazi in this. There's a bunch of Nazis that get mentioned on the news and then later when Ellie goes to the uh, launch of this space, the, the spinny gyroscopic... They just call it transport. The transport. So she goes to what I would assume is Florida. Was that Cocoa Beach? Or a similar beach at Cape Canaveral? Or Cape, that's not Cape Canaveral, that's Cape Kennedy. Okay. Um, they do do something at Cape Canaveral, I'm assuming that's it. But it's where all the people are lined up. And this movie came out the same year as, or, or just within months, of Mars Attacks. Uh, that has a very similar scene where a bunch of people all turn up to visit the, to, to be greeted by the aliens who then start blasting. Oh no, no, Cape Canaveral is Cape Kennedy. They changed the name in 1973. There you go. So yeah, yeah, it's the Cape, uh, Kennedy Space Center. Well, the the stations, the Cape Canaveral Station and the Kennedy Space Center are in different locations, but on the same Florida coast. You know what? We had a choice when we were in uh, Florida in 2017. We could have gone to the Na NASA side of Florida and visit uh, uh, that particular uh, historic area, or we could have gone across to the western side of Florida and gone to Sarasota, which for me is a very spiritual place since I went there as a child and I've always been trying to recapture those white sands and blue skies. Huh. This film is why I wanted to go there. I know. But the idea of us being torn between the practical and the spiritual and at the same time the practical was spiritual because walking around the rocket garden that was quite something. And sitting in a massive, I don't know if it was an IMAX screen, watching a film about, from, from the people on the space station talking about looking down at Earth. It was this transcendent experience that I would wish everyone to have. And some fuckers were on their mobile phone right in front of me and I'm like, are you kidding me? Right there is the Earth from space. And people what could tell you us possibly be looking at? That this doesn't happen in America. Apparently it does at the Kennedy Space Center. Yeah. 
Is that, is that the earth? I've seen it. Then why are you here? Anyway, but yeah, there's a whole bunch of... I just put the crazies that she walks past. It's, it's done very deliberately uh, uh, in a kind of an affectionate uh, nod to people. Except for the Hitler came from Vega people. Yeah, there's the, that's what I mean about that's Nazis. They mentioned that the police were grappling with, uh, with uh, right-wing extremist groups. And there's this one guy... Isn't that an eternal story? There's this one guy played by Jake Busey who's got this crazy fucking long hair and looks like, like the worst kind of Timothy McVeigh creep. He's got this malevolence about him and he's shouting about Jesus and, you know, anybody who, uh, you know, has a particular uh, fondness for Jesus would be like, that guy does not speak for me and he certainly doesn't speak for Christ. But he's... A cartoon man, a, a cartoon extremist. This this whole setup is a great example of something that I uh, and I didn't come up with this phrase, but I tend to refer to as worshiping the signpost. Mm -hmm. So the idea that throughout history, people have brought messages. Um, about a better way to live, about reaching a deeper emotional level, either through art or philosophy or prophecy or whatever. And what there is a tendency to do, look, it's like you're at the foot of a mountain, enlightenment is at the top of the mountain. You have nowhere, no idea how to get up the mountain and then you see a signpost that points to a path. And it might not be the only path, there's many paths that go up this mountain, but this is a path that looks like it might work for you. And instead of actually getting on the path, you sit down and start worshipping the signpost. And, in the case of Jake Busey, uh, anyone who doesn't, who passes by and doesn't start worshipping the signpost, you kill. Uh, yeah, it turns out that uh, Dallas from Alien Tom Skerritt got his uh, uh, word in and uh, managed to... Uh, get to be the first person sent off to Vega to meet all of these aliens. And this is what I mean about him having this, there is at least on some level an element of the desire to explore in him. It's been smothered by his day-to-day -day work, mm. but he gives up a very um, credible and presumably well-paid position as the White House's special space advisor in order to be eligible to be selected to go on this trip. Mm. So uh, the crazies are all gathered around. There's that. There's actually a line in um, the dumb version of this Independence Day where um, a woman screams, oh, I hope they bring back Elvis. How is Independence the dumb version of this? It has the opposite message. They are here to destroy us. Yeah. <laughs> True, and the Roland Emmerich films I'm thinking of are all notable for not really having one focal main character. They're all ensemble pieces and show how people around America, I mean around the world, are dealing with this big global event. Uh, but yeah, woman screaming, I hope they bring back Elvis, and sure enough, at the uh, the Vega Crazies uh, gathering, there is someone dressed uh, as uh, as Elvis with Viva Las Vega written on his cardboard guitar. We've, we've skipped over this, but the reason for this is that they've identified that the source of the signal... Oh shit, yes, sorry. At least the, the, uh, the element that they can identify is that it has been bounced off a star called Vega, which is um, <coughs> one of the nearest... Um, identifiable planetary systems to us, I believe. In the meantime, Arroway has also met with the person who was impressed by her candor at the uh, meeting where she was begging for funds vociferously. And uh, it's John Hurt. 
This movie indulges in the myth of the benevolent billionaire, which is that he's the one funding this. And you kind of have to, much like Jurassic Park. There has to be someone whose heart is in this and has access to insane amounts of money and contacts and can get things done. So, like, the contact couldn't happen without a benevolent billionaire. I do like the way that John Hurt plays it, where he's like, you know, I, I want to give something back to the world that has taken that I have taken so much from and he corrects himself as he as he goes let's not beat about the bush I Rupert Murdoch have taken and taken and taken and have become supremely wealthy and entirely influential as a result and so I want to give something back and that something is the chance for us to meet extraterrestrial life he's also he's, he says back in my day I was something of an engineer which means he's also what Elon Musk thinks he is yeah, we're not going to talk about Elon Musk that much, but no. there is definitely a parallel there. But it is worth mentioning that the myth of the benevolent billionaire here is somewhat undercut by the fact that John Hurt is quite clearly this god of chaos, Loki-like character yeah. who throws money at things to see what will happen. Like, how's it going, Haraway? I'm up in the space station right now. They would have had him played by Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, but he has this weird fixation on seeing this project through to the end, and that extends to having given them hints to solve the um, uh, the puzzle of the, the data that they mm. were sent, that they didn't realise how it fit together because they couldn't think, or not couldn't, but didn't Weren't think three-dimensional. Marty, you're not thinking fifth-dimensionally! Mm. You arrange the information that was encoded within Hitler or around Hitler yes. in a cube-like shape to then be able to find what she keeps referring to as the primer, which is like a way of decoding the information yeah. by the uh, uh, the false and the true being found. I am not a coder. I don't understand well, any of this. Uh, okay, think of it in terms of when you're learning to read. It's like um, having a book that says A is for apple, B is for ball, C is for cat so that you can conceptualise the sounds of the letters that you will then translate into yeah. words on the page. And it seemed like Arroway might be going up and she really, really wants to, but uh, then it, there's, it falls to an astronaut and then the astronaut pulls out because his family are like, please don't go, you're going to die. Then Tom Skerritt snags it. And the launch is all ready and then suddenly Jake Busey has snuck into the launch and I'm like... How did he get the f get up there? He does not look wily enough to be able to get to the most secure NASA launch that's ever existed. This is crazy. He sneaks in there with a bomb and a detonator and blows himself up purely so that he can destroy this thing that he hates and fears and doesn't understand and doesn't want to understand. I gotta ask, I gotta ask, what kind of security did you have going on there that he can walk in wearing God knows how much explosive strapped to himself with what appears to be foil wrapping like a metal detector would have picked this shit up, surely? He looks like he's been thrown out of every Wendy's he ever went into. Indeed. Anyway. 
The thing that this reminded me of, and it's possibly because Jake Busey looks a little like the same actor, Thomas F. Wilson, is the pre-flight video for the Back to the Future ride. <laughs> like, so, uh, Jake, like, if you've never seen this, just check it out on YouTube. It is the definition of cringe. If you were... And this was not filmed by Robert Zemeckis, but the ride was put together very much with the help of Robert Zemeckis. So you've got 50s Biff sneaking around Doc Brown's time facility. And it's like, you know what, in this context, with the production values of this, uh, you know, pre-flight movie, I'm, I'm fine with this. Like, it's cringe, but you can sort of understand him sort of looking into the camera and going, Hello! There are other parallels with Sunshine. Jake Busey represents... A us at our worst, most knee-jerk, most destructive. In the face of all this, he's Pinbacker. And uh, I'm most absolutely certain that we're right and everybody else is wrong. And to prove it, we're going to murder people. Lots of people. Not just murder, but destroy. As an expression of powerlessness, to destroy. Yeah. Um, like, say, for example, uh, shooting down legislation that facilitates medical treatment for other people. Not because you have any stake in that medical treatment, because it's not treatment you personally would ever want, but you don't want anybody else to have it either. Mm -hmm. Current year argument. Yeah. And the reason that Arroway is not accepted and is thus not in the Tom Skerritt role is that there's a, a tribunal where she's asked, do you believe in God? And she's like, ah, and we go back to the whole, uh, there's no proof of God so far. Matthew McConaughey's character, um, Joe Bananas, uh, says... I keep wanting to call him Joss Palmer because that makes more sense, but it is Palmer Joss. Sort of stalks into a meeting of scientists and says, science is about the search for truth, and that's just like me. And it's honestly... I'm not a scientist, but I feel like I've, I've heard repeatedly, science is the best answer we can give at the moment. Yes. And in doing that, <clears throat> there's an acceptance that what you're holding is not necessarily truth, but just the best answer we can give at the moment. If, 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 if it's truth, you're searching for absolute empirical fact and absolutely everything laid out from every potential perspective, which, since we can't see in five dimensions, can't be the case. Okay, if you imagine a uh, Venn diagram with science, commercialism, and spirituality, mm -hmm. there is a place where science and spirituality overlaps, mm -hmm. There is a place where science and commercialism overlaps. And there's a place, there where, a place religion, where spirituality and, and commercialism overlaps. overlaps. And that but it's really... is perfectly exemplified by 90s televangelists. Yes, indeed. But there isn't... What, what Let's they're... make a deal. Send me your credit card details. I'll have a word with God for you. What they're conflicted with here is that there isn't much interaction or, or um, comfortable overlap between the people who are science and commercialism mm -hmm. and the people who are science and spirituality. Yeah. And Arroway is asked, do you believe in God, by a very uh, frumpy court who are like, well, we're not letting anyone up there who isn't spiritual in any way. And they uh, quote an accurate at the time statistic of 95% uh, of people in the, on the planet believe in something 
like a god. It's shot from a very American point of view, and that when they specifically speak about God, it's very much a, a, an Abrahamic version of God. Yeah, I think it, it was worth asking their interviewees at this point what the nature of their personal spiritual beliefs were, mm -hmm. because if you send somebody who is extremely fixed in their perception of what God is, mm -hmm. and they meet something which is entirely counter to that, I mean. I don't understand why somebody like that would want to go in the first place, but if they did, then chances are you would get hit with that same problem of you saw something that overwhelmed you and it sent you mad, or you saw something that overwhelmed you and you rejected it. That kind of person might possibly, regardless of what they found, come back and say, nah, there was nothing there, because it conflicts too heavily with their perception of what God should be what they need is to send somebody who represents the people of Earth. And even now, uh, all these years later, the people who believe in something spiritual, something more out there, still outnumber the people who don't. Absolutely. Ideally, what they need is somebody who can perceive what is really out there and then translate it gently into a way that people will understand. When Ellie says they should have sent a poet, she is absolutely right. But the poet would have said it in ways that people go, oh, that's really nice, but what did you actually see? So here's the problem. There is also that. Not sending one person at a time. The <laughs> Maybe. But if you send five people mm. that all represent different aspects of our belief systems... Will they kill each other? No. Imagine <laughs> they all don't want to kill each other. They'd still come back with five different versions of yeah. what they saw. Yeah, that is like If you true. sent a very religious person, a very scientific person, and an agnostic, you'd get three different perspectives and you'd have to kind of crack the truth from the one that feels the least extreme, which is probably going to be the agnostic, Absolutely. who'd be like, I'm not entirely sure what I saw. And you'd get the same thing if you sent them out into the forest to talk to the burning bush. Yeah. It's, it's quite a pickle that the human race are in it in really this. It really is, yes. And uh, then ultimately the, uh, the crazies win by being able to destroy the thing that would have allowed us to communicate. Yeah. And this is the attitude of, do you know what? What's out there is too fucking complicated. We don't want to know. Also, this is why we can't have nice things. Yes. Because the, the, the Nazis fuck it up for everyone. <clears throat> Luckily, uh, as uh, John Hurt then says uh, in another uh, broadcast uh, from Mia this time, uh, that uh, the, the American way of doing things, very specifically also the NASA way of doing things, why buy one when you could buy two at twice the price? And it's like, who's your alien transport guy? Because it feels like you could definitely get a, a bulk deal on a lot of these parts. You would think. At the very least, some kind of 20% discount on your second one. <laughs> Mr. Domino's buying device for me. The aliens exploded. I let Jake Busey in. Well, that's really your fault. Even uh, Bezos will give you 25% off your second one. <laughs> I do want to mention that the trailer was really smart in this regard. It gave us all of everything we've been talking about so far. It sort of gave us a potted version of the conflict that uh, Arroway is going to go through. And then it finished on, like, she's walking down the gangplank and then the this pod opens up and there's a chair in there and it's like she's gonna sit in the chair and question mark you'll have to see the film to find out more trailers like that please seriously i really appreciate the uh, avengers endgame trailer for giving us kind of the setup like we've got to fix this 
and we don't really know what they're going to do, and we certainly don't, don't know what's going to happen as they walk towards their version of the pod, but wasn't that a great film to watch and go, so this is happening, so this is happening. If they'd showed bits of Asgard from uh, the 2014 events of Thor The Dark World, you'd have been leaning into it. It wouldn't have felt quite so, ah, in all of these moments. Also scored by Alan Silvestri, who also did Flight of the Navigator and The Abyss. Well, he has a type. And the film that the crew watched the most to really get their heads around the whole wormhole sequence was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because this device that she's loaded into effectively drops a ball into a gyroscopic field with her inside the ball, and then it does question mark. Like, they don't know. They can theorize. And what actually appears to happen is it's a mass relay. Which brings us to Mass Effect and why that game series and this film kind of waltz around each other in our heads because the premise of Mass Effect before you start the game, the history of human endeavor is that we got to Mars and we found plans on Mars for a Mass Effect relay, which is effectively an alien message saying, build this and then we'll talk. Mm -hmm. We build the mass relay at great expense for the Earth and then launch an expedition out into this wormhole to see what's there. And what's there is actually not at all dissimilar to what Arroway discovers. A citadel, as it were. A centre of the universe. A meeting spot. Or at least a junction point. It's it's not necessarily the centre of all things, but this... Possibly because of the influence of, of Mass Effect, that's how I think of these tunnels and wormholes that she travels through a huge network that connects everything together not necessarily around a central point that's elevated in importance over everything else but just we go to this one because this is our nearest and then we go to that one because that's the nearest to that one effectively we have a model for this in video games with giant open worlds a fast travel system yes oh um before ellie actually sets off by the way um, there's another example of her communicating in a way that's appropriate for the person that she's trying to communicate with. When the Japanese technicians strap her in and back away, she doesn't speak to them, but she does return their bow, as best she can, given that she is now magnetically attached to the back of her chair. And here I'm going to go back to Mike Hill design and the hidden meaning of Ellie's journey to Vega. He got a hell of a lot into 11 minutes. Ellie is entirely committed to science. She gets the opportunity for romantic human connection with McConaughey's character, but her existence is almost monastic. And here, she has to take a step into the unknown and make a leap of faith. And although there's a practicality to what we're talking about, there is an internal journey going on in very much a Guillermo del Toro style, which is just as significant a parallel as the actuality of what's happening. Ellie is journeying inside through a metaphysical death and rebirth. She has to go through the darkness, witness the light firsthand, and come back to the world of the living with a changed perspective, but freed. And there is a barrage of imagery when she's being led to the pod that I never picked up on the negative connotations of because it's supposed to be subtle rather than overt. Mike Hill interpreted the chair that they built her to sit in as an electric chair. 
the attendants who strap her in, wordlessly attaching her uncomfortably into this gas chamber, are dressed in scary clothes on purpose. They could have made them look cuddly. They could have made them more humanistic, but they deliberately didn't. And around her, underneath this gyroscopic, this massive whooshing machine, it has these Cthulhu tentacles just slashing about the place. She's scared because what she's going into will kill her in more ways than literal. And at the point of most tension, when the pod is subjected to the rigors of this travel and the one part of it that was not supposed to be there, the science chair, is straining at its hinges. She unlatches herself, lets go of science, and drifts forward to catch the compass given to her by a spiritual man. She could not be here without science, but she can't do this with science alone. So Ellie finally gets the chance to go and directly make contact with alien life. She goes down through the wormhole and we get a sequence that's similar to Kubrick's, but more human by far because it's not Kubrick, it's Zemeckis. So she is subjected to insane cosmic rigors as she's plunging, but keeps stopping seeing the universe from different perspectives as effectively she changes junctions and it moves her to another area further and further in. There's a lovely touch here with the, uh, the crackerjack compass that Palmer gave her and this repeatedly changes hands. He tries to give it to her, she gives it back to him, he leaves it for her when she walks out on him and eventually she gives it back to him in a sequence which I have to believe Peter Jackson's seen because it's exactly the same as Aragorn trying to give the even star pendant back to Arwen and she closes his hand over it and says keep it, it was a gift. And although the, the intention there is different, that's what Ellie does with Joss's hand, when, with mm. Palmer's hand, when she gives it back to him. Arwen, the even star is Bubkiss. It came from a crackerjack box. <laughs> but the what happens when she's in the pod is that the compass which he has he has brought back to her just before she left the chain comes loose and it drifts away from her which makes her realize that the intense vibrations she's being subject to are because she is attached to this chair which is fixed to the external frame of the pod that if she was just loose within it she would be drifting calmly not being subject to all of these forces the diagram shows a man just standing inside the pod. Absolutely. We add the chair. She questions the addition of the chair because she says that's not in the original plans. Yeah. And they're like, no, it has to have seatbelts. We have to put it in our context. Exactly, yeah. Which, again, is perfectly understandable, but I love that she has this little device which is, is useless in the, the outers of space. A compass is pointless because what it is aligned to is the magnetic pole within the Earth. Once you're away from the Earth, a compass is meaningless. But here, it has meaning and it is still able to show her something. Yeah. It illustrates that there's someone on Earth who wants her to find her way. Yeah. Absolutely. Which, for the record, is also something very relevant to people who are uh, deeply engaged in spiritual endeavours or artistic endeavours. Having some human contact to keep them 
attached to the world stops them drifting off into the obsession of whatever it is that they are pursuing. Mm. As she's travelling, strange things start happening to her body and her mind. The There's one point where her internal thoughts sort of manifest themselves slightly to one side of her face in a secondary face. At one point she mutters, they're alive, and then she launches into what appears to be an area of the universe just above a civilization. So she can see these concentric circles of, of, of existence and she mutters, they're alive, which illustrates that as she was traveling forward, she was going so fast, she had kind of caught up with the future yeah. at that moment. Yeah. There's also a sense that these uh, secondary faces moving off might possibly be uh, branching multiverse paths, that for a brief moment you can see both paths and then mm. she takes one. Um, and there's, a, there's um, a, a fading of her young face, Jenna Malone, over hers that goes backwards and forwards and, and gives the impression that you're seeing a human being as the child, as the adult, as all the stages in between, that, that once you are out of the range of, hu of, of human conceptual time, those things start to overlap and you can again get back that child self that's been pushed away. And that, that sense of adventure that Ellie has always professed, she's retained the child self better than most people. Yeah. That version of herself is absolutely necessary for discovery because without a drive to explore just for the sake of it, just to see what's there, not for any practical purpose, certainly not for any commercial purpose, that is something that it is very hard to find outside of children or people who are still capable of thinking in a youthful way. Mm. It's also worth noting that in conjunction with this, when she's, they're getting ready to launch her and she's trying to tell them that she's okay, she keeps saying Ellie to control, not Arroway to control or anything that, that would indicate that she is perceiving this with anything other than a, a child self's mind. Yeah. And when she gets to the meeting spot, it's uh, a heightened, almost Pandora-like version of a drawing of Pensacola that she drew as a child, with palm trees hanging horizontally. And the being she speaks to takes the form of her father. I remember uh, a South Park gag where Mr. Garrison grumbled about having seen this film waiting to, for her to meet an alien and it was her goddamn father. If it had been one of the uh, beings from the end of AI, would that have made people like Mr. Garrison happier? Ultimately, this is uh, it's a film which does the head and the heart. Yeah. And ultimately, AI does the same thing. They use David mem David's memories to create a scenario which will make him feel more comfortable. The idea, at least the way it comes across to me, is that as this being approaches its new contact, manifesting yourself as somebody that you're fairly certain that person is not going to immediately hit or shoot or in some way lash out at. How about this? Hitler. No, <laughs> not too keen on Hitler. Right, okay. But this is what I meant before about filtering for the individual because you can't filter for a group and not 
know with relative certainty that the way you manifest is going to calm them or at least still them and not instigate some kind of attack. It almost feels like they've dealt with humans before. Yeah. Well, one assumes that there are other species out there within the context of this story that are similar to us, yeah. maybe even more warlike. Indeed. Well, it's it, the, the way he talks about it, it almost seems like that's the nature of young races who are just coming to this understanding for the first time. Hmm. There's a, an image in this sequence as well that has, that, that is, I would say stuck with me, but I would go further than that. It is burned into my brain. And it's when Ellie picks up the sand on the beach and sees like just a little circle of what looks like stars or crystals in her hand. And it, for me, it connects with a, there's a, an old poem about buying hyacinths as well as bread if you have very little money left because you need something to feed your soul as well as something to feed your body and this image for me kind of translated to this she's on this this beach presumably there's going to be something here uh, like because it's an imaginary uh, beach that a child drew coconuts for example that she could potentially survive on but you need both Coconuts and crystals, that's my bread and hyacinths. Yeah. Also, you could level the whole why didn't he meet an alien at 2001 A Space Odyssey after he goes through that wormhole, he meets himself as an old man and doesn't exactly chat with him. It's, again, he's in this Barry Lyndon looking uh, bedroom. This is whatever intelligent beings are on the other side trying to go, you like beds, don't you, human? Mm. The concept that the further you travel out into space, the more what you're actually dealing with is what you take with you. Yeah. That outer space and inner space actually kind of loop, and this is where this saddle shape comes from, that it's it's the, the we come out from a central point, and if we go far enough, we will come back around and meet ourselves coming the other way. A philosophy which is absolutely corroborated by that three minute opening sequence, journeying out and through and in. By and large, most of the productions that I've seen don't really deal with what happens when you get to the alien homeworld, what happens when you deal with the intelligence. The um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind that I mentioned earlier is very, like they filmed new scenes for the director's cut after the film had been released of him, of uh, Dreyfus inside the ship. But uh, it's still very much an epilogue, and at the end, and off, off you go. Like, we don't really want to deal with this because it's best left to the imagination. Mm. Likewise, The Abyss. Star Trek First Contact. It ends at the point the Vulcans come down. They don't talk to each other. I think because the premise of First Contact is just that. It's First Contact. Mm. It's a handshake. And to make a thing about acclimatizing human life to life within the center of the universe communicating with countless other races and other cultures there's almost no way you can't make it feel like a Babylon 5 or a, a The Expanse or something that's 
kind of set on a, or Deep Space Nine, set on a space station with a lot of people talking in rooms, but that's a long-form TV show. But that's, yeah, or it's Mass Effect. That's the thing. Once we've Well, done that's the that, thing. Mass Effect starts way after that. Yeah, exactly. There's no Mass Effect game about that contact. Exactly. It, but it's it's there in the background, um, and the, uh, the philosophical ideals behind it carry through the whole story. But ultimately, what you're doing is hanging around in New York talking to people about politics and trade agreements and shipping contracts and once you get past that first contact oh. bit and we we establish what the new normal is it's fucking boring it's very prosaic it's the same thing but larger that we were doing before valerian's another one that mm. uh, that introduces more and more alien species in a beautiful montage but the specific the specificity of those meetings almost cannot be written and almost cannot be conveyed as entertainment it needs to be symbolic yeah yeah and and also in the human experience the the joy um that we experience is fleeting the virtue of novelty is that it is brief once we have got used to that new thing the shine fades off when we go looking for something else so ultimately that's the, the establishment of a, a new normal, that's where the engagement of telling stories like this sits. It, it's Again, I think I've mentioned this in podcasts before, but it's like the whole before Zen, during Zen, after Zen thing. You, you have to eventually get back to a point where things are ticking along pretty much as they were before, but people don't tend to write stories about that. Because we don't, we, we need the stories to help to guide us through the interchange points. But a couple of things get established in this particular meeting. This is the way it's always been, at least as far as we know. I love the fact that the being she's talking to also doesn't know everything. If they're a scientist, they don't have absolute truth. Mm. That's not, like, science is not about the absolutism. It's about progress and updating what we know. It's a, a log book. And uh, he refers to people who, a people who built this fast travel system that they don't know about. That's the Protheans. That's the Forerunners. That's. Yeah. There are fragments of this as well in Interstellar. Yeah, absolutely. With Matthew McConaughey going, I'm going this time. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But again, that doesn't concern itself with what happens then after we make that contact. Yeah. It's too big for the average human brain to get around. And again, it is restricted by writing that you could put that into script form. It almost, it is, it is better left to musical montages that can affect you in a cerebral and an emotional way. Yeah. One of the things that I noted was that the the fact that the message from uh, these beings comes in the form of a combination of video, audio, digital images. They effectively throw every form of wave they have at this signal because if one doesn't get through then maybe another might and eventually when people can perceive all of them they layer them onto each other to create something that's greater than the sum of its parts that's movies that's film that it, it can combine visual dialogue music sound effects and through editing through the kuleshov effect a message can be conveyed by how those things are mixed 
and when we reach a point where it's very difficult for uh, for us to to summer up in just words how I feel about this because this is an overriding yearning for me the idea that uh, we aren't alone in any sense I mean ultimately you could take the we're not alone aspect to just the spiritual aspect I, it, for my personal philosophies are very much in the the only thing that makes the emptiness bearable is each other which is again kind of ironic because I, I like my space I, I like to know that I can contact people and I'm not ridiculously out of uh, touch but there's a comfort in solitude but also that comfort comes from knowing other people are together mm, yeah. but it's it, you're right it's that sense of reaching out rather than being smothered by there's um, a parallel moment when Ellie is on the beach she takes her gloves off so that she can better interact with the sensation of whatever it is that's surrounding her and protecting her because what she can see with the possible exception of the the nebulae and stars that that are sort of up in the sky she's surrounded by some kind of, of projection and she can feel whatever it is that that projection is is on and when she is in the car after the Capitol Hill discussion and uh, Palmer has come out to the car to come with her, she takes her gloves off to reach out for his hand. Yeah, which is significant because she takes the alien being by the hand, or specifically he takes her. We see that he's wearing a blue ring and then he rotates the hand around to illustrate that she's wearing a blue ring, her father's ring, potentially them, her mother's ring. Uh, and, but that that I'd never noticed that particular little uh, uh, piece before, but it's we are of a kind. Mm. It's an accordance, the yeah. taking of the hands and saying, we both have this. Yeah. Obviously, they've laid, this is a hollow deck. They've laid that image across him, but they are communicating that to her visually, emotionally. Yeah. It is a small blue circle. And there's the, the re one of the reasons why I think it's really appropriate that he turns up as her father, rather than, say, for example, the mother she never really knew. Because we do have a vague idea of what she looks like. There's a scene where you see the photograph of Ellie and her father on one side of her mirror, and on the other side she's got a picture of a woman who looks a bit like Joan Baez, but it's a, it's a black and white image, and I'm assuming that that was her mum. Um, but the the idea of it being a parent in particular, that these beings are further along than us, but very similar to us and are trying to pass on the tools and the knowledge and the philosophy that they've learned in the years and or whatever terminology you would use for it, the, the time that they've been running ahead of us. Mm. It's passing that information down. And that's the other thing, you send out people who are really invested in the idea that we are the supremest beings ever and that we're special and unique and um, but not in a, as, as Ellie puts it in her testimony, how precious and just this idea that every individual human is this unique special thing but the idea that humans generally are supreme and deserving of, of commanding over everything else that's out there in the entire universe. You, you don't want to send somebody with that attitude. 
Maybe the Hitler thing's a test. If they respond positively to the Hitler meme, we're going. I'm kind of, uh, again, lost for words. I, I have difficulty in expressing the finale of this film because it's it transcends words. There's a beautiful final shot as, uh, just as she's leaving this place as all of these points of light rush through the sky together all up into a unifying singularity. As always, every week we thank our backers. Thanks to you folks, we don't have to go from office to office demanding funds to keep the School of Movies project alive. Neither do we have to kiss Tom Skerritt's ass much as we'd like to. You are our collective John Hurt. And a special thank you to everybody at the $15 level. And this week that would be Aaron Lecluse, Abel Sabat, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hario, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And as I said earlier, we will be back still with Robert Zemeckis for next week's Dueling Pinocchios. Yet again, one of the suggestions by the movie studios during one of the many re-scripting phases was, at the end, Ellie has a baby, and settles down to just be a mother. One presumes with Palmer Joss, which illustrates her reconnection to the human race. I'm glad they didn't do that. Although she's not believed, which feels like the most realistic outcome of this, she has made an extraordinary amount of headway, a journey outwards and inwards of indescribable distance. And yet, to the observer, it would appear she didn't move at all. And there are a couple of repeating phrases and motifs throughout the film. Small steps, uh, her father says that to her at the beginning, and as you said, the aliens are coming off very much as parents, and I return to Alan Silvestri's flute-like score, playing to the human race in a sympathetic way of 
you're young, you're filled with all of these emotions that are, specifically when you're a toddler, you believe you are the center of existence. And the reason that there's such a thing as the terrible twos is that the growing out of that is painful. Yeah. So I believe the human race is currently going through our terrible twos. Um, I think it's adolescence because in adolescence your brain goes through a similar thing. Yeah. Your, your sense of identity is expanding and clashes with what toddlers don't know, which is that there's a whole other world out there that has nothing to do with you. The other repeating motif wearing the philosophy of this film on its sleeve that is voiced three times. If there's no one else out there in these billions upon billions of planets, it'd be an awful waste of space. That was her father says that once. Palmer Joss says it to her, which brings them closer together. And at the end, she recounts it to the children. And rather than literally becoming a baby factory herself and continuing the species, she imparts perspective to a fresh new generation. It is at once a ever hopeful philosophy. And since it deals with the kind of scale that would usually drive humans mad. It's both an acceptance and a humility of our insignificant little speck of a planet that is everything to us.